0: Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at loe.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks.
1: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin.
2: And I'm Jeff Young. Five years after Hurricane Katrina, we look at the recovery and restoration of the Gulf Coast. We visit the tiny community of Grand Bayou. Despite the storm and the oil, it's still hanging on, barely.
0: This is our place in the universe. This is where the Creator set us down. In spite of all the impacts that have come at us, both natural and human-induced, we're still here. This is where we belong.
1: Also finding the silver lining to the dark clouds.
3: That storm, at the time it was happening, it didn't look too good. But in the end, it was very good. Everybody was, like, putting their shoulders together and doing this thing, helping this city to come
4: back.
1: Katrina and Rita Plus 5, this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
2: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. This is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young.
1: And I'm Steve Kerwood, and we're reporting from New Orleans. Five years have passed since the storms that flooded the city reshaped the region and left indelible images in our minds. The long climb back from Hurricanes Katrina and Rita became even harder this April when BP's doomed rig let loose a torrent of oil. Today, we revisit some of the people and places we reported on in the wake of Katrina. We'll hear who's made it back and how the Gulf Coast might recover from the storms, the spill, and the grinding constant threat of coastal erosion.
2: About eight months after Katrina, I was reporting from Louisiana's Plaquemines Parish. That's where the Mississippi Delta branches into a bird's foot and the land melts into the Gulf. Towns like Venice, Port Sulphur, and Empire were just beginning to rebuild. I got curious about the small gravel roads that climbed up and over the levee, and the people that lived beyond that protective wall of earth. So I picked one at random and drove it to the end, through the treeless marsh to a boat landing. That's where I met Raymond Race and Nicholas Bartholomew, both fishermen in their 60s and both still struggling to come back from Katrina.
5: This is Grand Bay Village, they call this. So uh, all the guys around here is called Grand Bay Village. We all, all live right here. And uh, I don't we do trawl and catch horses all our lives. That's all we do, you know. So we're just hoping to get back in business.
6: We didn't make a lot of
2: money, but we made a living. We made a living. That was the main thing. But Katrina came and took that away from us, and we can't get no help from nobody. Mr. Bartholomew said he couldn't get assistance to fix his heavily damaged boat. Mr. Race said most of the village's 25 or so homes on stilts above the water at the bayou's edge were still uninhabitable. Some people were living in FEMA trailers in nearby towns. They showed me where Mr. Race and some others were living in the 10-by-12-foot cabins of their shrimp trawlers. But they live on there for six months during the storm. Six months they live on this boat. Right here,
5: There were four, four or five people living in this little cabin. We yeah. had t- two bunks, the stove, a little bathroom, you know, and a or five fire person in here kind of crowded, you know,
6: (laughs) you know.
2: What do you think is going to happen here? Is this community going to come back the way it was? I'm
5: going to tell you right now, uh, them them people here, they die hard. They're going to come back. They're going to come back. Unless they find a better place to live. But I don't believe they find a better place than this. This is like in heaven, you know. Everybody was together with a big old family, you know. So I don't believe they're going to split up. It was
6: like a big old family. When they cook, everybody eat. How many dinners
2: they given giving this here? People coming to eat. Grand Bayer. Yeah, we
6: have, we have the
2: home of back. the free.
5: Like I say, I don't know when he'll come back. back. But, but he will, will back. be
2: back. Oh yeah, oh, yeah definitely. He, he will be take, back. Take time, but he's going to come back. I might not see it, because I'm getting older. But this place will bloom again. That was spring 2006. This summer I went back to that same boat landing to see if people had come back to Grand Bay. <laughs> I recognized Raymond Race as soon as his boat pulled up. His hair might be a bit whiter now, but it's a full head of hair that shines against his deeply tanned skin. He looks fit and happy. In December, he finally moved into his house after living on his trawler, the Uncle Norris, a lot longer than he had planned. Four and a half years. By that time you see it with
5: Uncle Norris, living in a little bitty boat. Now we got a house, so we're living in a house. We got everything we need,
2: you know, hot water. We're doing good. We're happy. Way better than the way better than the boat. <laughs> yeah. But shortly after Mr. Ray's got into a house, he was out of work. The BP oil spill closed the shrimp and oyster beds. He's been getting by with oil cleanup work.
5: I got my son here helping me working on, the, on the oil spill. So we're doing good. You know, we happy now. You know, not what we want to do, but like I said, we we're doing something. We're paying the bills, so we'll be all right. You know, we, we, we survived Katrina. Just we can survive this too. You know. But like I said, the only thing I put out, trust in the good Lord, and things will be fine.
2: Why was it so important to you to stay in Grand Bayou Village? Well,
5: I'm going to tell you something. Uh, my mom married my stepdad, and I was two years old, and I've been here ever since. I'm 66 years old. What would I change now? You know, That's my livelihood. I'm going to stay here. Yep. So you know, we got the burial grounds right here. So why move? Everything is there, you know? Yeah. Everything we need is here. All of my family's here, so where, where, where can I go, you know?
2: Catching up with Mr. Reyes, years after we first met, I finally started to understand his strong sense of place and community. Grand Bayou is a Native American village. They are the Atakapa Ishak people. So when Mr. Reyes talks about the burial grounds, that's not just a cemetery, it's a burial mound. History for Grand Bayou stretches back centuries before the first Western settlers arrived. And for all that time, they've made a living from the bayou. Now there's deep concern about whether that way of life can continue. Rosina Philippe meets me at the landing in a small boat. It's the only way to get around in Grand Bayou Village, where Main Street is a waterway. Miss Philippe's 54. She has a long, black braid and a steady gaze. She's Grand Bayou's unofficial historian. We're in Grand Bayou right now.
0: You can see some of the remnants of the homes.
2: Uh, of the people who were displaced by Katrina, how many
0: do you think have come back? Well, we only have managed to return nine families.
2: Out of how many who are here? Nine out of 23.
0: Yeah, well, we're still in recovery from uh, Katrina with uh, rebuilding the homes, returning people, you know, back to the village to reclaim their lives. It's an ongoing process. And it seems that other things crop up to kind of um, bleed our energies and our attentions away from, you know, that focus. Like with the oil disaster in the Gulf.
2: The bayou's waters still teem with life. Shrimp, crabs, and oysters. Porpoises in the water. Oh my gosh, there they are. Yeah, coming right at us.
0: Yes, they're wonderful to watch
2: when BP's oil hit the nearby bay, it struck at the very core of Grand Bayou's existence.
0: It's one of the most serious impacts we've ever felt. We've been here in this region for more than a thousand years. We're the first peoples in this region. And we have had losses from natural hazards, some from human-induced impacts, but even at the worst of times and all of these other occur- occurrences, we were still able to feed ourselves and to provide at least food for our families. And uh, now that's threatened, and we do not know the long term impacts.
2: The backdrop to all this is that the land itself is disappearing. South Louisiana is eroding at an alarming rate, as much as a football field is lost every 40 minutes. It started with river levees cutting off the sediment-rich floodwaters that nourished the marsh. Natural subsidence of the soft delta soil accelerated. Then came the oil wells and miles of canals for pipelines and platforms that carved up the delicate wetlands.
0: They came in and they manipulated nature and they took and took and took. They cut canals and allowed the salt water to intrude. A lot of the trees and vegetations died off. You know, we've seen all these things take place. And now that we know better, I do believe that there are things that can be done. And there are some things being done, but it's not aggressive enough. Because, you know, it's almost like you're giving a critical patient an aspirin when they have cancer.
2: People from Grand Bayou are now helping coastal researchers better understand land loss in a partnership between science and traditional ecological knowledge. Oh, it's invaluable. I mean, uh, I don't know that we could have done this study without having that knowledge. That's Matt Bethel at the University of New Orleans. Bethel's project pairs up satellite and aerial images of the shrinking coast with the intimate knowledge that fishermen and trappers have of the local land.
6: They were able to fill in the blanks between image shots that we had and tell us, okay, what was going on here? What did you observe here while you're out fishing and trapping that would explain some of the things we were
2: seeing in these satellite images. That level of detail could help guide restoration projects to save the marsh. Bethel clicks through decades of aerial images of Grand Bayou. Narrow channels of oil pipeline canals widen into rivers over time. Small ponds become lakes, and acres of land turn to open water. At this rate of loss, Grand Bayou could soon be swallowed by the Gulf of Mexico.
6: You know, there are maps uh, produced that show that this whole area will be gone by 2050. And the Grand Bayou people have seen those maps. They know that. If they all move off and they scatter, they'll tell you they're not the same people. They're tied to the land. And without that, you know, they they don't have anything.
2: The coastal erosion has national implications, as does the oil spill, as did Katrina. But the tiny community of Grand Bayou is on the front line of all three, a microcosm of major challenges. Rosina Philippe says her people have learned to live in a changing environment, but now the changes come so quickly, it's harder to adapt.
0: And I've been asked this, you know, well, why do you put up with this? You know, why do you stay Why do you fight to return? And I could only say that if you were here in Grand Bayou and you could know the peace and see what I see, this is our place in the universe. This is where the Creator set us down. In spite of all the impacts that have come at us, both natural and human-induced, we're still here. This is where we belong.
2: She kills the engine and we sit and listen a moment to the marsh.
0: We have our our sacred places still. We're a mounds culture, mounds builders, and they're suffering from erosion, and that's the original site, you know, of our our people here. Many, many, many generations.
2: What would it mean if if burial mounds went underwater?
0: They have. There used to be twelve. Uh, we have three now. It's it's a loss. I can't even tell you the loss. You know, I can't even translate that in, into words. And to see the erosion, to see the trees falling over because the land has eroded away. I, I just wonder what the future generations. You know, they'll just
2: have our history and our story, but they won't have that place. See photos of Grand Bayou and its people and maps showing coastal land loss at our website, loe.org.
1: In a moment, we'll look at what the people of the Gulf Coast want their government to do to help rebuild their lives and livelihood. Stay tuned to Living on Earth.
2: It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young.
1: And I'm Steve Kerwood, down in the bayous of Louisiana. When you go down the bayous from New Orleans towards the ocean, you head into Louisiana's 3rd Congressional District. And this year, as candidates vie for an open congressional seat in bayou country, we ask some active citizens how they want their elected officials to serve them in these perilous times of storms, oil spills, and coastal erosion. We begin at Ellender Farm. 3,200-acre sugar plantation.
4: You can hear the wind in the cane. See how tall it is? That's ready to harvest. Hey, Yvonne!
1: Teresa Marie Ellender walks past her neighbor's house and towards fields of tall, green stalks of sugar cane. Her husband's family has owned and farmed much of this land for more than 150 years. Her house faces Highway 55 in the small town of Boer in a parish called Terrebonne, which is Cajun French for good earth or good land.
4: They used to um, take a don- have donkeys and a barge, and they would pull the barge. They, down Montague used to have a um, sugar mill, and they would load up the barge full of sugar cane and follow the, the bayou all the way down to the mill. And so that's why the road is here and follows the bayou and why it's so close to the bayou.
1: Passing cars and trucks would find it hard to miss the big sign planted in front of her house. Jeff Landry, conservative for Congress. Jeff Landry is a lawyer and part owner of an environmental services company and one of three men running for Congress in this district's Republican primary. Here's Mr. Landry announcing his run.
7: Our country is in peril because our government is out of control. Caused by a president in Congress where free spending and liberal values reign. Where the size of our government is growing as fast as our coast is eroding.
1: Inside the Ellender home, Teresa Marie switches on an espresso machine and pours frothy steamed milk into a glass. For you. Soy latte.
4: Soy latte. That's one cup you want to take a sip there real quick. There, it's going to... Now, if you want some sweetener, let me know.
1: Mm, Right here in the bayou, huh?
4: (laughs) Right here in the bayou.
1: And right here in the bayou canals stretched by oil and gas companies, have helped destroy the wetlands, leaving coastal residents more vulnerable to storms and flooding. And how important is this to Teresa Marie Ellender?
4: Coastal erosions are definitely a real thing. I mean, it's happening. Big old chunks of land are just falling off. That's real important around here because there's there's not going to be here
1: and right here, you're you really you're in the sea. I mean, this house, this is elevated. You don't have any kind of basement, I'm sure. Because
4: oh, there's no basement. But we're high. We are eight feet above sea level. How about that? <laughs> yeah, we're pretty high. We're the high. We're kind of like the high points. And in that weird in the parish.
1: But still, it must feel kind of tough being here. How many storms and how many years? And now this oil spill
4: five years, seven storms. It was pretty intense. And then uh, the oil spill, I mean, it's been bad. You, you know, I mean, it's not clean and everything, but it's not to the degree that it's made out to be. I think that there's a whole lot of environmentalist exaggeration going on. You know, if you start looking at some of the warm water catastrophes and oil, things clear up pretty quickly and
1: pretty nicely. So yeah, let's talk about this. We've had all these storms, this oil spill. What should What Could or can government do about this?
4: The federal government needs just to kind of pull their hands off and allow the state to handle it. But people have got to learn to stop turning to government. I I, I hate to to sound, but we've got to become self-reliant. And um, with the uh, moratorium, that thing has got to be completely overturned, completely, because... It's hindering them, the oil companies, from drilling, from doing their job. And, and I feel like I'm, I'm singing the praises of the oil companies. But you've got to understand, oil is mm, the blood that runs through the whole country. And without it, there's nothing. Makeup, oil, everything, oil. Wish I had some on my property. <laughs> so,
1: so um, end of the day, how do you feel our democracy is working?
4: Well, we have a republic instead of a democracy. And I don't, I don't really feel like our republic is, is really working well. I don't feel like the people in Washington are representing the people here. We need to get people of integrity, like Jeff Landry up there.
1: All three Republicans and the lone Democrat oppose President Obama's moratorium on deep water drilling. But there's still plenty to fight about. Republican oil field manager Christian Magar is polling in the single digits and is unlikely to survive past the first primary round on August 28th, which is open only to Republicans. It may take a runoff to settle the Republican contest, and it's already become a showdown about who's the true conservative, Jeff Landry or former Louisiana House Speaker and retired National Guard Major General Hunt Downer. Hunt Downer's volunteers call themselves Hunt's Army, and they work out of a bare-bones office building in downtown Homa, Louisiana.
8: Yes, ma'am. I'm, I'm a volunteer with General Hunt Downer Campaign for Congress. I was calling to remind you about early boating. That began last Saturday.
1: Huntington Hunt Downer served not just in the first Gulf War, but also in Katrina and Rita as the number two man in charge of the Louisiana National Guard's rescue and rebuilding efforts, riding out Katrina at National Guard headquarters.
7: I actually saw my own vehicle float, go underwater, and then it just went from there. And I did search and rescue, spent the first week on the roof of the building as we operated out of there for search and rescue in the New Orleans area. So I'm going up there as a general to try and give them a little direction with some common sense and some practical knowledge learned at the hands of a hurricane, at the hands of a storm having seen coastal erosion. So
1: you go to Capitol Hill. What would you change about how the federal government takes care of places like Louisiana that have a high flood danger?
7: First thing I would do is reorganize the Corps of Engineers, get the bureaucrats out of it, get the bureaucracy out of it, and do like we do in the military, like you should. You make a decision and you move forward. We don't have time to study and study and study. I'm just tired of that. We need help down here. Look at the millions and billions we spent to save the Florida Everglades. And that's inland. We're on the coast. Save us. It's a culture. It's a way of life. It's our oil and gas industry.
1: Hunt Downer was a Democrat until about seven years ago when he switched parties. And like him, Democratic volunteer Carol LeBlanc thinks the rest of the country needs to recognize southern Louisiana's contributions and vulnerabilities.
4: What should government do? Money. Number one, foremost, if we get the proper resources, if we can get the proper monies down here, we can build the proper levees because we don't have proper levees. Most places we don't. And, you know, if you don't have proper levees, I mean, we, it's it's hopeless what happened in New Orleans, you know. And I read of some of these senators and reps that don't vote for funds for, you know, for us and all, and I'm like, I don't understand that.
1: This year, Carol LeBlanc is fighting for Ravi San Sangisetti, the sole Democratic candidate for the third district seat. Mr. Sangiacetti also gets a helping hand from Craig Stewart, an attorney based in Homa who has a different economic concern.
3: Specifically, Louisiana was, uh, has been known or has historically been a community where the big companies would come in and uh, pretty much have their way. So they would come in with waving the flag that we'll create 1,500, 2,000, 3,000 jobs, and then everyone would roll out the red carpet. Forget the regulations, we'll give you tax incentives, to bring those jobs in our community and uh, we'll turn our head when we have the environmental concerns. But, you know, with Ravi in there and a couple of other individuals, maybe we can have a stronger voice at the table, uh, a voice of reason that can put the checks and balances in place.
1: Yeah, yeah. Ravi Sangisetti is campaigning tonight at a local restaurant in the small town of La Rose. About a dozen people get settled in plastic chairs at long tables, eyeing the candidate and the buffet of jambalaya spread out in the corner of the room.
5: I'm the jambalaya?
1: Jambalaya. Ravi Sanjassetti is a Princeton-educated attorney who wrote his senior thesis on how to save a local estuary. At just 27, he's a lot younger than people he stands up to address. He also stands out for another reason here in Cajun country. His parents were born in India.
9: Hey, y'all, thank you so so much for coming. Uh, My name is Ravi Sangiasetti. I was born and raised right here in South Louisiana. And as I'm sure I'll be challenged on that fact, I'll I'll be sure to carry my birth certificate with me as I I hit the trail. (laughs) We're well acquainted with federal government dysfunction here in South Louisiana. Well, it's time for South Louisiana to take a stand. We produce energy, seafood, agricultural goods like sugar cane, and we build ships for the rest of the country. And we do this despite the fact that we're washing away that we're losing our coast, that we lack adequate hurricane protection.
1: Ravi Sangisetti is here to talk and listen. And before he can secure votes, he has to win some credibility.
2: Why should we believe you?
5: Damn, that's the attitude I have I know what you're talking about. In okay. other words, that's what you're saying, that you need to get in there to change it. Okay. But will you change it? Absolutely. We've been cheated so much.
6: So much.
5: So many lies, And everything, the way things are going right now, in other words, I'm frustrated and have enough of it. Now I feel sorry for my grandkids. I feel sorry for my kids. And just like a fisherman, I've been a fisherman for almost all my life. It's a way of life and everything else. That's how I was raised with my daddy. We lost it. Our freedom is gone.
1: In November, Ravi Sangisetti will face the Republican who eventually gets more than 51% of the GOP vote. Perhaps then the Bayou country electorate will make it clear what the majority wants in addition to integrity less government, or more federal money. Our piece on Louisiana politics was produced by Mitra Taj.
2: The man in charge of the federal government's plan for restoring the Gulf brings a varied resume to the job. Ray Mabus is the 75th Secretary of the Navy. He was governor of Mississippi in the late 80s and was President Clinton's ambassador to Saudi Arabia. I spoke with Secretary Mabus in his Pentagon office. He told me what he's been hearing
8: in his town hall meetings on Gulf restoration. When the cameras go off, once the well was capped, not to forget the Gulf. Second, that whatever plans come forward ought to come from the Gulf up, that the people of the Gulf, the people who live there, work there, uh, raise their families there, ought to be the ones that are the primary drivers. Third. A lot of work has already been done on how to restore the Gulf environmentally, for example. Not to try to reinvent the wheel, but simply use these sorts of things um, going forward. Finally, that the Gulf um, is so important to the rest of the country, that while this was a Gulf crisis, it's a national issue. This is America's Gulf, and... This should be a national response to this. And how big a piece of the puzzle is the restoration of the land itself, saving the wetlands? Well, ecosystem restoration has got to be our top priority. Louisiana loses a football field of land every 38 minutes. Some of the issues in the Gulf, environmentally, have been well known for a long time now the erosion of wetlands, the erosion of barrier islands, and the fact that as wetlands erode, as barrier islands erode, you make hurricanes protection less viable. Those things have been there before. The oil spill made them worse, clearly made them worse. And I think that while you are restoring the, the damage that the oil spill has done, it may give you an opportunity to work on some of these longer-term things because you're going to be there anyway.
2: Do you see BP paying for this?
8: Well, I think BP is clearly the responsible party for the oil spill. For things that have been there for a long time, you may look to different sources.
2: You know, when I have been to the Gulf recently, I hear a great deal of frustration and some skepticism from people about – claims that that help is on the way did you pick up on that at all and if so what do you how do you overcome that
8: the main assurance i have is that the president of the united states from the oval office promised the people of the gulf and the people of america and i think that that is the ultimate guarantor
2: of course it's not the first time a president has pledged to help the gulf coast
8: we will do what
6: it takes we will stay as long as it takes to help citizens rebuild their communities and their lives.
2: That was President George W. Bush in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. Forty years earlier, President Lyndon Johnson made this pledge after Hurricane Betsy.
6: The national government will be at Louisiana's side to help it every step of the way in every way that we can.
8: Why should uh, Gulf residents
2: think that this time is going to be different?
8: Well, for one thing, the response has been... It's been a huge federal response to the spill itself. Look at what's been done already. But second is judge by results. If you want to build trust, be trustworthy. I hope that the report that I give to the president and the actions that are taken in the in the wake of that will help build that trust. And then particularly the actions that are taken, you know, day in, day out, month in, month out, year in, year out, will continue to build that trust over time
2: so if you expect people in the gulf to to judge you by results what should they be looking for what would that first result look like
8: well that we had listened to the people of the gulf that we don't try to reinvent the wheel that it is an ongoing process that we're not going to forget the gulf that we're not going to leave now that the well is capped. this report and this commitment is ongoing Secretary Ray Mabus, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.
2: Well, time now to catch up with someone we interviewed in the wake of Hurricane Katrina.
6: My name is Bob Rue. I'm an old fart. I've been here since 1964. I was brought here as an indentured servant, and I've been here ever since.
2: Bob Rue never left New Orleans, not even when the storm hit. He stayed to guard his business, Saruk Shop Oriental Rugs on St. Charles Avenue. When I first spoke with him in 2005, he was enjoying a brief moment of fame. Newspapers carried pictures of a sign Rue had scrawled on his boarded-up windows, a warning to would-be looters.
6: It said, don't even try. I'm sleeping inside with a big dog, an ugly woman, two shotguns, and a claw hammer.
2: I won't ask who the ugly woman is. We have some discretion here. Well, today, the streetcars and tourists are back on St. Charles Avenue, and Rue tells me his famous plywood sign has found a new home.
6: Well, now it belongs to the state of Louisiana, and they're going to have the fifth anniversary at the Presbyter, and my sign is going to be in the entry.
2: So it's kind of like a, an artifact.
6: Yeah. You know, I went down there. I had all five pieces of plywood I found in the street and painted up the signs. I had them bottom of my truck, and I just was, you know, kind of throwing them on the ground, and... These museum people out there with these little white gloves picking them up and fondling them, you know. <laughs> right now, one of them's on exhibit in Washington D.C. at something called the News Museum. Ah, oh, the museum. Museum, yeah. And uh, the girl called me for weeks trying to get my picture of Tim Russert to stand out front, but it's lost in the menage. I've gotten married since then and moved everything, and I don't know where all my pictures are from the storm. You got married? Yeah, yeah. There's still women in New Orleans with no taste. She's wonderful. She's uh, half French, half Sicilian. Her family grew up here in New Orleans. uh, And she's an incredible cook, pretty damn funny, and overlooks a lot of flaws.
2: Well, you seem to be doing well.
6: Uh, There's no business. The banks, you know, they're not loaning any money for mortgages. So nobody's buying houses, so they're not decorating, so they're not buying rugs. I'm having to depend on rug cleaning and repair, which is... Thank God for dogs, because they pee everywhere. And we got these little black voodoo candles in the shape of a dog. And when things are slow, we light them up. And all over town dogs go crazy, start biting the rugs and pissing
2: everywhere. Basically, we're making it on rug cleaning. And sure enough, in walked a customer with a pet-stained rug. See pictures of Bob Rue's famous signs at our website, LOE.org.
1: In just a minute, the gospel jazz trumpeter who says Hurricane Katrina baptized the city of New Orleans. Stay with us at Living on Earth.
2: Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young.
1: And I'm Steve Kerwood in New Orleans. Five years after Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, areas of downtown New Orleans and some neighborhoods look pretty good and function well. But not everywhere. I stopped by the house of environmental justice expert and Dillard University professor Beverly Wright. She came back to rebuild her home in the black middle-class neighborhood of New Orleans East. What happened in this house?
9: Well, uh, this house is very interesting. It had six to eight feet of water in it, completely destroyed. There was an alligator in the pool in the back. And uh, the whole house had to be gutted.
1: It's beautiful now. I mean, I couldn't tell walking in here that anything ever happened.
9: You really can't. That's the beauty of this whole thing. There's no reason for us not to be able to come back because it can be rebuilt.
1: So here it is, five years on from Katrina. Katrina, how are things here?
9: Well, if I had to grade the city, I would say we're about at a 5 on a scale from 1 to 10. But there's some areas of the city who are at a 9. So it really, how you're doing depends on who you are and where you live. And it's not necessarily connected to income. It is connected to skin color. And African Americans who made up 80% of the people affected by Katrina are not doing as well as White people who now make up 80% of the persons who have come back whole. In New Orleans East, for example, we have one supermarket. I went to the supermarket yesterday. I could get no lettuce, you know, no fruit, all the fruit gone. It was just amazing. 70,000 people, one supermarket in New Orleans East. That's it. And I have to tell you, I've not been a big McDonald's fan, but after Katrina... If it weren't for McDonald's, we wouldn't have had anything to eat. It was like people just forgot about us. So
1: how would you explain what happened in New Orleans in environmental justice terms?
9: Well, the environmental injustice occurs in a number of ways. The fact that, first of all, when you look at the federal level, how they never address soil contamination that exists all over the city.
1: What are the contaminants that are in the soil here?
9: We have extremely high arsenic levels and PCBs. Because where we live, we use a lot of pesticides. We have a lot of pest, from rat poisoning to pesticides for roaches and mosquitoes. You already have all of that, right? Then you add to that the big mixture that came from all the water from all over, even from the bottom of Lake Pontchartrain. Then you add to that human feces and everything from the sewage treatment plants. That water was extremely filthy and very dangerous. And then it settled. There was a light dust That covered everything when we came back home. And what is just amazing about this is that it was an easy fix. And the Army Corps of Engineers had, in the first few weeks after the storm, come up with a remedy. They were literally going to scrape dirt off the whole city. New Orleans would have been the cleanest urban area in the country where some politicians decided that if they did that, they'd never get the city back. It would have a reputation for being a Superfund site. My thing was, if you're not going to protect the citizens, at least tell them what they need to do to protect themselves. And so we started the Safeway Back Home campaign, where people remediated their own properties and planted new grass and so on. And the block that we worked on, there was one lady who didn't have much grass. So she decided when she saw the mounds of dirt that she didn't want to be bothered with that. So she went outside sweeping up her patio. She broke out with a rash from her head to her toe.
1: So how far has the self-remediation program gone?
9: I would say not far enough. We've been concerned because New Orleans has a, um, a, a history of backyard gardening. So when I was a kid, everybody had a garden. If you didn't have one, you ended up with one because the vines would start to grow across the fences, so you'd end up with tomatoes and what we call meliton, which is a Japanese plum. You have okra just showing up in your yard. So I grew up with things growing in my yard that we ate. And so it's an old tradition, and it's been difficult for us to try to get the word out to people, do not eat the vegetables that are growing in your yard unless you've had your yard tested or use raised uh, gardens.
1: So what are the other environmental justice issues that come out of the Katrina experience?
9: Well, levy protection for one was one of the biggest ones. And we're still dealing with that. I mean, even after all the money that was put in place, wealthy and white got better protection than the rest of us. So I went to the Army Corps of Engineers meetings to find out What is this process and how is this happening? And this is what we were told, that rich white folks were in the plan for better protection some 15, 20 years ago. And so their projects were already in the hopper. So when things get fast-tracked, what's in the hopper comes out first. So they ended up ahead of us again. So it was a lesson for us, you know, trying to understand how does this work?
1: Let's talk about the oil disaster and the environmental justice aspects of that even as far north from the Gulf as here in New Orleans.
9: You know, it was amazing to me because whenever they talk about fishermen, they don't show black fishermen. It's a huge group. And think about it now. If we were not allowed to go to school, we had to make a living some, some way. If it wasn't on a plantation, what would black people do to earn a living in Louisiana? They would become fishermen and oystermen and stuff. And they're 10,000 deep in some of the parishes, in Plaquemine Parish and so on. But they were invisible. I think that certain cultures that have made Louisiana distinct could disappear. When certain lifestyles uh, disappear, then a certain part of that culture that has been maintained can also disappear. So we're about, we could lose our difference. Um, My hope is for the future with young people. I would say that young people are not nearly as racist as what we used to be. And I think they see a completely different world, and I'm so happy that that is the case.
1: Professor Beverly Wright directs the Deep South Center on Environmental Justice at Dillard University in New Orleans.
2: Weeks after Katrina, I walked through the Lower Ninth Ward of New Orleans. Dried mud cracked underfoot amid the wreckage of homes. One of those homes belonged to Robert Green Sr. Now, thanks to his tenacity and the generosity of a Hollywood star, Mr. Green has a new house on high stilts in the Lower Nine. He shows me the high ceilings.
10: Hello! An echo. (laughs) <laughs> There's an echo in the house And actually, and a lot of people actually think That this is a two-story house But where we are standing in this house Was underwater during Katrina Even though we elevated off the ground We are way high above the street yeah. here And we were underwater So that loft is actually an escape feature Because when we were here during Katrina And a house lifted off its foundation And floated two blocks up the street We were actually stuck in the attic about this high, and we thought we were safe, and the water was going over our head. About 3,000 houses were washed away on that day, and on that day, we lost our house. We lost my mother, Joyce Green, who was 73 years old. We lost my granddaughter, Shanae Green who was three years old, but we also lost all of our neighbors. We lost Mr. Gaskin, we lost Ms. Brumfield, we lost the Legas, we lost the Fletchers. We lost so many families that day. After a barge bust a hole in a levee wall and made this a uh, spillway, it washed away this neighborhood.
2: This is part of actor Brad Pitt's Make It Right project, a tract of affordable, stormproof, green houses. Mr. Green watched his being built while he tufted out in a FEMA trailer. I lived in that FEMA trailer for three years. But now, now you're back and, and you're in an amazing home. Mm-hmm. And the idea
10: of building these houses is to build a house that's better, that's stronger, that's environmentally friendly, that uses as many recycled materials, that uses materials that have low VOC levels. We also have solar panels so that we can get away from the use of fossil fuels. And it's actually the LEED Platinum certified house. Do you think houses like this are the future of the the Ninth Ward or is this out of reach for, for so many people? I think it's the future of the world, to be perfectly honest, because one of the things which we have to do, we have to build better, build wiser and build stronger. If every house built were built on that same premise, then in the long run, we're going to benefit environmentally. We won't use as much fossil fuels. We won't contaminate our own environment that we have to live in. So if we look at what the benefits, the outweigh the costs.
2: How is it to live in? I mean, it's, it's really striking
10: looking, but does it feel like a home? Oh, it's a joy and a pleasure to be back in the same location of the house that was destroyed in Hurricane Katrina. It actually allowed us to bring life back to this neighborhood. So it's basically a wonderful house to
2: live in. This is one house that's truly a green home.
1: In New Orleans, a little bit of French goes a long way, like beignet for donut. And where else to get those amazingly tasty morsels but Cafe du Monde at the edge of the French Quarter? Depending on the morning, along with your beignets, you may also get to hear street musician Hack Bartholomew. A trumpeter and vocalist who's played with the greats, including the Neville brothers, George Benson and Keith Richards, Hack Bartholomew left New York City after 14 years to come back home to New Orleans and jazz gospel. Hack performs five days a week at Café du Monde. And when he's not busy producing recordings, he's the trumpeter for the great St. Stephen Full Gospel Baptist Church. As the cicadas buzzed on a hot August afternoon, Hack Bartholomew sat down on his front porch to tell me the story of how he survived Hurricane Katrina.
3: I got a revelation from God to just get out. So my wife and I and our kids, grandchildren, we all just left. Fortunately, my wife had a cousin in Houston, and we were able to stay over at her house. When the storm hit, We were sitting in Houston, we was watching everything on television and praying and hoping that everything would be all right for the city, but it was not. But fortunately, where we live, up here in Carrollton, the Carrollton Black Pearl section is a pretty high point of the city. As you can see, my home is just like I left it. I got back. A lot of my neighbors had wind damage, like the neighbor over here, his roof blew off. Neighbor over here, our doors and windows blew out, and just about everybody had wind damage except us. (laughs) church in New Orleans East on Reed Road, it was totally flooded, 14 feet of water in the church. But our uptown location was spared. I think we were one of the first few congregations that were back after the flood. Under. in Houston, we looked at the television, we saw the whole city underwater, you know, it's about 80% of the city underwater. And I said, you know what? God is baptized in New Orleans. You know, when you baptize a person, you submerge them down. It, it signifies one being buried and rise. when you bring them up, they're rising up again to that new man that's coming up that's rising from the water. And uh, New Orleans was really going off the deep end there, you know, with the crime and the corruption and what have you. It kind of made people think. It made the politicians think. It made the people of New Orleans think about doing something positive, about having integrity, about being accountable to your brothers and sisters who you see every day. That storm, at the time it was happening, it didn't look too good. But in the end, it was very good because we had all of the love and the compassion of people all the people that came down to help us, all black, white, Chinese, Asians, Indians, you name it. Yeah, I think they might have had some purple people down here. <laughs> I didn't see them though. <laughs> but uh everybody was like putting, you know, like putting their shoulders together and doing this thing, helping this city to come, come back. <music>
1: You like to play the tune, Down by the Riverside. What is the war that you're talking about that we shouldn't study anymore?
3: The war that I'm talking about is not Afghanistan or Iraq and all of Vietnam or any of that. The war I'm talking about is the battlefield of your mind. The people that makes us want to hurt another person uh, take from them is that your mind your your heart your soul
11: what are we doing down by uh, the down about, okay. gotta lay down my burdens down by the riverside down by the riverside down by that river side lay down Down by the riverside, don't study one no more. I ain't gonna study one no more, cause I ain't got time for that. I gotta be peaceful. I have to love everybody.
1: Bartholomew, lifting Jesus up, down in New Orleans.
2: There's more of our coverage of Hurricane Katrina and its fifth anniversary at our website, loe.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation from the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios. I'm Jeff Young.
1: And from New Orleans, I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. i got my down by the
11: riverside, oh, down by, the riverside down by the riverside
1: i got my Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies, Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org.